I'm gonna ask for some early participation this morning. So by show of hands, is there anyone here who enjoys watching other people open gifts? Okay, I've realized over the past couple of years that I really enjoy watching other people open gifts. Some of that is because I'm a gifts love language person. It doesn't feel like a very spiritual thing to admit. Um, but the only thing less spiritual than that is lying about it. Uh, but over the course of the past several years, I've realized that I love watching people open gifts because gift giving is almost always an experiment, right? You're trying to, to think and consider the needs of the other person, what's something they'll enjoy, or at least trying to click the right link to the very specific Amazon list that they've sent. Um, and so I love seeing the experiment go well. You know, there's a look on someone's face, their eyes light up and they're joyful when they receive a great gift. But I also, to be frank, Love watching it when people get a gift they didn't really want. Because there's this moment where they open it and they have to pretend to be grateful for something that they're very confident they'll never use. And that's hilarious. Uh, most people have a certain face that they make when this happens, you know, and a certain tone of voice that comes across them. You've probably seen this at a birthday party. If you've given someone a gift, you've probably seen it. People sort of have this expression of fake gratitude and they say something like, oh, this is so nice. Uh, when in, in fact, in their head, they're thinking, I don't know what in the world the point of this is for me. Uh, you know, it's not a bad gift. It's not a useless gift. It's just that the person receiving it has no idea how it would fit into their life. There are certain passages of scripture that feel that way to me. Inspired, helpful for someone, I imagine. Useful for sure. But when I read them, I think, oh, that's nice. But it's probably not for me. Our reading for this morning has been one of those for me for years. You know, um, the function of miracles in the New Testament, I think generally, is to help us remember that God really is able to put the world right. So miracles are less a disruption of the natural order of things. And in fact, God sort of returning the world to its default settings. And so I see, um, and then people who wrote the Gospels included miracles in there to frame up some of the things that Jesus is about, but also to help us understand the kind of work that the church should be about as we follow Jesus. And so uh, when Jesus heals the blind man, he's reminding us that God is about the work of healing people, about the work of setting their perception of the world right. And I think, ooh, that's a good gift. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, um, I think God is able to push back against the forces of death, even when it feels like it's too late. That's a good gift. When we see four friends lower a man who is paralyzed down to Jesus, and we hear Jesus say, take up your mat and walk because your sins are forgiven. I think that sounds right. Jesus is able to make people well again, but more than that, he's able to make them clean. He's able to repair parts of us that are underneath the surface and are invisible, but no less broken than the brokenness that everyone can see on the surface. That seems right. You know, my eyes light up. I think this is a good gift. And then in, I open Matthew 14 and I see Jesus and Peter walking on the water and I go, oh, <laughs> that's nice. Um, what's the point of this? I can't imagine it's useless because the scripture includes it. Uh, 
but I'm not sure how I follow Jesus, much less Peter into walking on the water. And I'm even less sure how this connects to the kind of work that the church is supposed to do. And so when I saw this message uh, in the series of Peter that we're in right now, I was intrigued. Uh, And so I've camped out over the course of the past few weeks in Matthew 14, asking how might this passage be a gift for the church? A gift that's actually worth um, receiving. Our reading today comes directly after the feeding of the 5,000. Some of you know that story. Jesus had just heard that his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod. And after hearing the sad news, Jesus wanted to be alone right away. And so he, he took a boat to a lonely place where presumably he could weep and he could mourn and he could pray to his father in private. But the crowds followed him. And so Jesus sort of delays uh, his time of grieving long enough to do some more teaching and healing. But the people get hungry, as people do when listening to sermons. And so Jesus takes five little loaves of bread and two fish and uses the contents of one little lunch pail to feed, the text says, 5,000 men plus women and children besides. And then there were 12 baskets of food left over. And that's a miracle I love, not just because I'm a big fan of lunch, um, but because there's something in it that I think the church can use. You know, uh, often I think we end up in the church thinking that what we have to offer the world isn't enough. But in the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus take what seems like not enough and make it more than enough because the disciples believe Jesus' word to them. That's a good gift, but it's not the passage we're in today. So after the feeding... Jesus withdrew, and the text says that Jesus emphatically commanded his disciples to go across the sea. Maybe he was an introvert with the assumption made that he would soon rejoin them after some time of prayer. We don't know how much time Jesus actually managed to have to himself. But the disciples were sailing in a region where the storms are known to be severe, and the text says that sure enough, the boat is rocking and hit on every side with waves. And so they're at least terrified and maybe in danger of losing their life. The text we read this morning puts it this way in a different version. The disciples were in trouble, far away from land. And Jesus came to them. Maybe this is a miracle we can use. When I'm in trouble... um, when I'm facing a problem or a crisis or a decision that feels too big for me to make alone, what I usually pray for is a certain outcome. I pray for healing. I pray for a way out. I pray for the storm to calm. But underneath of all those things that I do ask for is a question that I almost never dare to speak out loud, which is, does God really care about me at all? And if not, what's the difference between a God who doesn't care about me and no God at all? Whether or not things change, will I sense that God is going with me into the storm? Will God draw near to me in the chaos of my life when things are unresolved and I'm screaming and I feel like I'm about to die? Or is God only interested in drawing near to me when I'm feeling spiritual? If we want to know what God is like, then Jesus is the best place to look. And if that's the case, then maybe one of the best parts, the good news for us this morning is that God is present in the unresolved. 
when our life brings us sorrow, when healing doesn't come, when our relationships are in turmoil, when the storm is not calm and the waves are over our head and everybody knows that nobody walks on water. Jesus comes to us through and despite all the natural limitations and is present with us in trouble. But Jesus' way of showing up is sometimes terrifying. And this is what the disciples experienced next. The text says next, says that the disciples were scared of Jesus and said, it must be a ghost. The word of the Lord. And Jesus lets them know it's him. Our version this morning rendered it, don't be afraid, Jesus said, take courage, I am here. But the original language is closer to this, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Reminding the disciples in the same words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, that God is able to meet his people in circumstances where their lives are threatened and lead them through water to deliverance. Before the deliverance comes, before the situation changes, before they're out of the jam that they're in that could cost them everything, because I am is with them. They have the power to not be afraid, even if they face loss. And then comes the part that most of us actually focus on when we read this passage. The text says that Peter called to Jesus and said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come on, Jesus. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Jesus said, why did you doubt me? There's a lot going on in this story generally, and I think we usually um, move through it pretty fast because much like a gift that we're receiving but don't have much use for, we assume that this gift is primarily for someone else. We assume that this is actually just about Jesus and Peter. And yet, as I've sort of hovered over this text over the past couple of weeks, I'm starting to realize that there are some, of, some things that Peter does in this passage that may surprisingly actually be useful for us in our own discipleship to Jesus. The first thing he did that may be useful for us is he asked for what he needed. Um, when Jesus says, it's me, Peter says, Prove it. And all the disciples are probably thinking it, but Peter is the only one who says it. And as usual, when Peter is speaking, he's actually speaking for us. I don't know what it's like to have, um, to ask God to, to have me walk on water, but I do know what it's like to wonder if the promise can hold me. I talked with someone a couple weeks ago who gave me permission to share this. Um, she said, I've had moments where I wanted to ask God for something completely supernatural only to have the prayer get stuck in my throat because I'm frankly not sure that God will come through for me. And so it's easier to just not ask God to do anything supernatural because then I won't be disappointed when I don't get it. Peter had every opportunity to not ask Jesus for this. 
And yet he did. He says, it's dark. I'm scared. I have no idea, Jesus, if that's even you out there. Maybe you're a ghost. But if that really is you, would you do something for me that only I am could do? I think there are those of us this morning here who, if we were honest, would say that we wonder in our circumstances if God is with us at all. And even if he is, we're afraid to ask God to prove it because if he lets us down, it will kill us. I wonder if one of the best things that we can find in Peter's example is the courage to ask God to be with us in the way that we actually feel we need. The second thing that Peter does that I think may be helpful for us is that he actually believed that he could do what Jesus did. I would never, you know? I mean, most of us, if we're in the boat that night and we suspected, best case scenario, you know, the person on the water is actually Jesus. Worst case scenario, it's a ghost. Um, But if I see someone walking on the water, what I think is good for them. You know, I'm glad I have a boat. Um, But what Peter says is, I want in. Um, And what I love about Peter in this story is that even though his faith is like followed by embarrassment for a moment, his initial impulse was to believe that disciples of Jesus are actually capable of doing what Jesus does. (laughs) That is not the posture that most of us take when we read through the scripture and see the stuff that Jesus does. You know, we see Jesus praying and forgiving and healing and having empathy. And we think to ourselves, how nice for him. He didn't have kids. Uh, He wasn't married. He didn't have the distractions or the relationships or the longings or the losses or the mortgage that I do. And so we say we believe that Jesus's way is the best way to live while underneath we make all kinds of excuses about why it won't work for us. Sometimes I'm concerned that our greatest challenge in churches is that we'll call ourselves Christian without actually believing that we can live as Jesus did. I'm concerned about that because I've done it for years. I think the challenge for most of us is not that we'll become wicked or faithless or brazenly disobedient to God, but the challenge for most of us is that we'll be middlingly righteous, somewhat faithful, and moderately obedient doing our devotions and praying, but still holding grudges, still obsessing over how much money we can keep for ourselves, still being more discipled by voices in the news media that keep us fearful and defensive and resentful instead of more open and loving and wise, sacrificing an encounter with the living God in order to gain a modest, conservative, positive, encouraging life built on godly principles, or as the Bible calls it, a form of godliness without any power. A burned out light bulb with all the equipment to give light, but no energy running through it. And so it's no surprise that over time we reduce our spiritual practice to a small slice of our life like quiet time so that we can use the Bible to justify going about the rest of our life as we really want to. Our colleagues get the brunt of our grumpiness. Uh, Our families get the brunt of our anger. And we settle into a pattern that helps us steer our lives uh, towards self-improvement while believing that the way of Jesus is probably good and spiritual and kind but just like walking on the water, not really for us. And we'll never get called out on it 
because it's not a wicked life or a brazenly sinful life. It's just a life that only walks the way of Jesus when he's headed where we were already going. Peter shows us that even when it feels impossible, even when we have no frame of reference for this sort of thing, we can really follow Jesus into a new way of living. The third thing that he did uh, that I think we can learn from is that Peter failed into the embrace of God. Um, a few steps out of the, on the water, after that initial impulse of faith that let him get out of the boat, um, Peter fell. And this is the part of the sermon where if you've heard this sermon preached on uh, by others or me in the past, you've probably heard that the moral of the story um, is that Peter didn't have much faith. So sad. But you can do better. You know, uh, if you just have a little more faith than Peter, you can do impossible things that are even better than walking on the water and sinking. And, um, and so it's simple, you know, it, it, it's tempting to read this as a simple moral story. Don't doubt, and God will let you be part of a miracle. But call me cynical. I'm not that, I'm not that convinced that most of us are going to do any better than Peter in our first attempt to walk in the way of Jesus. Because walking the Jesus way, loving your enemies, forgiving those who hurt you, confessing and repenting, giving your money away in a world that's bent on us grabbing more for ourselves is not natural. And so once again, when his head goes below the waves, Peter's standing in for us, trying to be faithful, even as the circumstances around him are overwhelming him. And so Jesus catches him and says, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? And I've read that in the past as if Jesus was a little bit peeved with Peter. Um, But I read a commentator this week who said it may be more accurate if we were to read Jesus saying, how many times will I have to save you before you know I can be trusted to hold you? How long will you worry about your life because you think you're the primary one in charge? How often will you ignore the ways that I'm trying to love you and complain that I didn't show up? How much pain will I have to go through with you until you know that you're not beyond my embrace? Maybe there are still those of us in the church who need to know that when we find ourselves in obedience out of our depth, God will keep on pulling us up, saying, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I am still able to do for you and through you, what you can't do for yourself. All right, time to move on. Fourth thing that Peter did, and the last one, is that he made sense of the miracle with community. Um, Peter walked and sank by himself, but the storm didn't calm down until Peter was in the boat with the disciples, um, who soaked to the bone with storm water, (laughs) made sense of what they saw Jesus do, and said, truly, you are the Son of God. And then they picked up their oars and they rowed and they remembered. Anytime the New Testament um, talks about boats and storms and disciples, they're actually talking about the church usually. And so anytime you see boats, storm, disciples, Jesus, you should sort of have a little alarm bell go off in your head that goes, oh, he's talking about us here. And sure enough, uh, that's what's happening in this story. So if you sort of zoom out here, you see that some of what it seems like we're supposed to take away from this is that the church is the place as we try and sometimes fail to walk in the way of Jesus, we return to bear witness to the fact that God is with us in the storm and able to walk through the things in our life that seem overwhelming enough to kill us. 
tempted as we might be to leave the church or belittle the church or find ourselves suspicious of what all this stuff is about, the church is still the place where God does in and through all of us what he can do more than what he does for any of us alone. And it's the place where when we're tempted to forget that God can be trusted, we come back to row and remember until God calms the storm again. So those four things are kind of gifts to us, I think, of what Peter does. But I kept wondering um, this week, like, how does the church of Jesus in Marion 2024 unpack these things in a way that's useful um, for our lives? And so I was um, preparing the sermon this past week and was in Pastor Emily's office talking about Peter joining Jesus on the water. And I kept accidentally referring to the story as a parable. Um, And a parable, of course, is like a made-up story that Jesus told throughout his preaching to illustrate a true principle. But this isn't presented as a parable. It's presented as a gospel account. And so Emily looked at me about the 15th time I'd made this mistake, as she's so gracious to do, and said, you've called this story a parable a few times now. I wonder what that says about your way of thinking about it. And I realized that there's part of my brain even after spending a long time in this text, that just kind of mistakes this for just a story. You know, that's just an illustration, you know, that God can be trusted. Uh, Something that almost takes on the tone of a fairy tale. And I started to realize as I got toward the end of this week that I prefer to interpret it that way because I want some distance from the idea that God would cause me to do something I don't know how to do that would fail without his intervention. You know? I am the kind of person who wants and believes, you know, God can empower me to do something as miraculous as walking on water, but I'm also the kind of person who wants to bring some floaties just in case, (laughs) you know? Um, Part of that is because I really do think that God works through a good plan, you know? Thanks be to God. Um, but, um, (laughs) um, But part of that is because I've asked God before for things that seem impossible and he hasn't delivered in quite the way that I want him to. And so I want to have some mechanisms in my life that keep me in charge of where I'm headed. Or at least a backup so I won't drown. Um, If I put it simply, in so many seasons of my life, I have believed in Jesus, but trusted in me. And I don't think I'm alone in this. My hunch is that there are those of us this morning who find our belief directed toward Jesus, but our trust directed toward ourselves. We go to work, we come home and complain that we're tired. We go to our various social commitments and gatherings and gradually end up adjusting our hopes for nothing more than surviving our calendar and hoping that maybe someday we'll have the margin to become the kind of person we really want to become. And so discipleship ends up sort of being, you know, a perpetual New Year's resolution. You know, someday I'll, you know, read more. Someday I'll pray. Someday I'll, I'll obey this call that God's laid on my life for a long time. And, and so uh, discipleship becomes a perpetual resolution that might, like most New Year's resolutions, never actually gets done because we never find the time to do it. And so instead, we live the kind of lives that can be recognized as Christian, but look very little like Jesus's life. Clinging to whatever security we can find, because in our heart of hearts, 
we're really just not sure that the way of Jesus can hold us. And so we have built a life that doesn't require him to. For those of us this morning who are here, this miracle may not have been the gift we asked for, but it sure is the gift we needed. Because the first call of the text this morning is to get out of the boat. I think some of us already know that we're called to something, but we've been putting it off because it feels too risky. Maybe it's global missions. Maybe it's to search for a different job. Maybe it's to approach our current job that's really difficult to stay in in a different way. Maybe it's to take the the first step toward reconciliation with someone you've had a broken relationship for a long time. Maybe it's stepping out of a scarcity mindset with your time and instead of thinking, I don't have time to serve other people, I don't have time to use my skills or my space, to put weight on the way of Jesus, which is to find a way to be a blessing even if it means realigning your schedule. Others of us need to step out of our reputation and find a way to confess sin that we've hidden beneath a good reputation so long that it's made our heart start to rot. I imagine a couple of us may be hearing God speak to us about the way that we use our money, calling us to budget, not just for our future, not just to build wealth, but to build generosity, to invest not just in our dreams and our hopes and our wants, but in somebody else's dreams and somebody else's future and somebody else's life. The objections, um, the reasons not to do this are real. It may cost you money or time or reputation or something you care about more than all those things combined. Like Peter, some of you may be thinking, if this goes wrong, it could kill me. And there's Jesus out on the water saying, I know, do it anyway. I can hold you. Don't you want that this morning? Don't you want a life where instead of walking in your way, you follow Jesus into his, sometimes doubting and sometimes sinking, but held by God as you take one stumbling step after another toward him in the midst of the storm and finding after all that he can be trusted. Some of us this morning need to step out of the boat. Others of us, the second call at this passage, I think are for those who have gotten out of the boat and are a few steps into obedience now. And although our initial impulse was to believe that God could be trusted, we're finding ourselves in the middle of the water, out of our depths, starting to drown. We feel at risk. We feel out of control. We feel a little bit ashamed that our best efforts at obedience have let us in over our head. And so the second call for us this morning is for those of us who need to say with Peter, Lord, save me because we need the living God to intervene and we need to hear Jesus' words in the water. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. So the first call this morning is for those of us who need to get out of the boat, but the other one, the second, is for those who need to say, Lord, save me. Both are conversions of trust. Both are ways of allowing God to hold us in places where we cannot hold ourselves. And so I'm going to, for just a moment, hold a moment of silence this morning as we reflect. But once you've identified which call is speaking to your life, I'd ask that you join me to the floor by standing as we pray a prayer of commissioning together.